pray with me. Father, we are, uh, we're thankful that the words of that song are true, that you are a firm foundation for us. Lord, that in the middle of uh, a world that seems like it's uh, going to pieces, that you, that you are a firm foundation for us. Would you root us more deeply in that truth this morning? And we pray these things uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, you guys can go ahead and take a seat. And as you're getting settled, I just want to remind you guys of something that we say here all the time. We are always talking about how church is not a show. Uh, and I think that can be easy to forget in this environment where we're actually taping a service. So I just want to remind you this morning is not a show. That what we believe is that God is here and that God has something that he wants to say to us. And so that's, that's what we're doing this morning is we're coming together to hear, to hear from the Lord. And so in, in preparing for this morning, I, I was thinking about uh, this old, well, what I thought was the current army slogan. Do you guys remember the slogan, an army of one? Okay, remember, it's not a show, so you're going to have to give me a little bit more than that, okay? <laughs> Woo, it's going to be a long morning otherwise. So do you guys remember that slogan and be an, an army of one? Yes, okay, I thought it was the current slogan, but it's not. That was like way back in the, in the early 2000s. But the army had this as a slogan because they were trying to reach a group of people. They were trying to recruit a group of people who, that's you and me, right, trying to recruit us. And we've been told our whole lives that, that the most important thing in our world is ourselves. And that the most important thing that we can do in our world is to be true to ourselves, that us forging and forming our own identity out on our own was the most important work that we would do in our lives. And so they said, come and be an army of one, which is an incredibly misleading slogan for the army, right? That's like the opposite of what the army is about. And no one faults the army for that because the job, the, the thing that they're trying to accomplish is so much bigger than something that one person could do on on his or her own. That actually being, being part of the military re requires that people are willing to be a part of a team, that they're willing to take their individual identity and merge it into a collective. They've got to be willing to be part of something that's bigger than themselves. And guys, so often as... as I mean, it's true about us as Christians. It's just true about us as people. We live in probably the most individualistic society that has ever existed on the face of the planet Earth. And I don't think that's an exaggeration to say. But that's not a biblical picture of identity. And we get that in our passage this morning, that actually the call on us as Christians is to come and to now bring our identities, yes, as individuals, to, but to come and be a part of a collective. We've been talking about what it means for us to be priests over these last few weeks. And something that we have to understand if we're going to live in to this calling that God has placed on our lives is that we're not called to do that alone. That the calling to be a priest is a, a, priest is a calling to be a part of a kingdom of priests. To be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. So this morning, we're going to talk about, about the reality that we are a temple. Okay, we are a temple. We're going to talk about what it means for Christ to be the cornerstone of that temple. And then, really, we're just going to flesh out what it means for us to live in that reality. We are a temple. Christ is the cornerstone. And being the temple 
Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter 1. And then if you go to 1 Peter 1, go one more chapter over, because we're actually in 1 Peter 2, so, okay. So this is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you, have, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me read that last verse again. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's, let's talk about then what it means for us to be the temple, that we are the temple. Okay, so all throughout this passage, Peter is taking all of this Old Testament imagery and he's applying it to the church. And so for us to understand what he's saying here, we've got to understand some of this Old Testament imagery. And we see that in verses four through five. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. Spiritual house. What the heck does that mean? Okay, that, that phrase is supposed to call to mind really specifically the idea of the temple, the temple that was in Jerusalem. So Peter is talking about an Old Testament idea, and he's applying, I guess, and then, <laughs> then it wasn't an Old Testament idea, then it was just an idea, right, because there was still a temple in Jerusalem. And he's applying this idea to the church. And that means that this metaphor is really important for us to understand if we're going to understand what it means for us to be a kingdom of priests. Okay, so have any of you ever been to an ancient temple? No. Okay, neither have I. But these temples were designed to be glorious, right? And that's why, maybe not any of us, but lots of people go and visit their ruins. There are these tumbled-down buildings that are pollution-charred. There are these old, ancient skeletons of buildings. But we go, and people spend all kinds of money to go and look at these things because their glory was so great when they were constructed that even in their decay, they're, they're majestic to look at. And that was true of the Jewish temple. It was this majestic structure. And you can read all about it in 1 Kings 6 through 8. It was breathtaking. It was all... It was all hand-carved, right? And, and all, around, all around the temple, there were these intricate designs of palm trees and, and flowers that were bursting into bloom, angels, and, and all of it was covered in gold. 
there are these massive bronze columns outside of the, outside of the temple, and all of these change, hundreds and hundreds of pomegranates that were all like forged in bronze that connected these temples, connected these columns intricate lampstands, and everything that was in the temple had been specifically designed by God. And it all worked together to tell a story about who God was. It all worked together to communicate the majesty and the glory of God. It was all about God going public, God making himself known to the world. It was a, designed as a place where God would be glorified. But it was more than that. It was also the place where God dwelt. Okay, so a feature that was really common in ancient temples, right? And have any of you, I know we already have established that none of us have actually visited ancient temples, but has anyone been to the Parthenon in, uh, in Centennial Park? Okay, we have done that, good. Has anyone actually paid to go inside? Did you know you can do that? Okay, and what is inside the Parthenon? It's a giant statue of Athena, right? And that was true of ancient temples. There would be a statue of the God to whom that temple was dedicated. That was not true of the temple in Jerusalem. There was no statue of God. And that's because God didn't need to be represented in that temple because God dwelt in that temple. God actually came and his glory rested on, on on and in that house. You can read about it in 1 Kings 8. When that temple is dedicated, God comes in this huge cloud and he fills the temple such that the priests can't even minister and do their work in the temple because it's so full of the glory of God. And God dwells in the holy of holies as the priests then continue to do their ministry in the temple. Over hundreds and hundreds of years, this is true, God dwells among his people in a totally unparalleled way. But the story of the Old Testament is that over time, the people of God turned their backs on God. They treated his presence in the temple as kind of a talisman that would keep evil away from them, and so they used it kind of as a get-out-of-jail-free card to do whatever they wanted. And what ended up happening was is that God withdrew his presence from the temple, and the temple was destroyed. The people of Israel were taken into exile, and it's hard to describe how cataclysmic this was for Jews and for their national and religious identity. It's kind of like the show Designated Survivor, which I have not seen, but the premise is pretty simple to grasp, okay? Like when the State of the Union is happening and everyone that's involved in the U.S. government is sitting in Congress, something happens and everyone dies. Washington, D.C. is destroyed. That would be very disorienting for us. That, that's essentially what happened here. The Jewish people, their identity was totally rocked when the temple was destroyed. But there are these prophets who came and they said, hey, God, God is going to come and dwell again with his people. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. The temple is coming, the temple is coming back. God's glory will be here. And eventually the temple was rebuilt and reestablished. But when some of those exiles came back and they saw the temple that was rebuilt, those people wept. And they weren't weeping in joy, but they were weeping because the temple that was rebuilt had nothing on the original temple. The glory was so much less. And the glory of God never came back to dwell in that temple like it had originally. And so the people of God were waiting and were wondering. They had this expectation, when is God coming? When is God coming? When is God coming? And what Peter is telling these 
these people that he calls exiles, Jewish exiles and Gentile exiles who have now come to God through Jesus Christ. What he's telling them is that these promises of the temple is coming, the temple is coming, he says, that's now fulfilled in you. You are the temple. That you are how our God is choosing to make his glory known in the world. You are how God is choosing to dwell in our world. Like the temple, you mediate the presence of God, the blessing of God to our world. The temple was a place for God's name to be made great, for God to become famous and be known. Now that's you. I totally turned people's ideas about religion upside down. But when they heard the temple is you, what they heard is that the the temple was the gathered people of God. Not the temple is you as an individual person, but the temple is us together as the people of God. We are a temple. All of the all of the yous in this passage are plural. So Peter isn't trying to address us as individual people and say, hey, you're a temple over here and you're a temple over here and you're a temple over here. He's saying, no, no, no. All together, as the people of God who are gathered together, this collective identity, in all of you together, I am making my name known. Through you, the way that you interact with each other and worship me together, I'm choosing to manifest my presence to the world. We are being built into something together because we, the people of God together, are far more beautiful. We're far more precious to God than any building. And what God is building in and amongst his people is more majestic than any temple that has ever existed. That the work that he's doing in us and through us is stronger and a, and a more powerful testimony to his glory than any building and anything we could cook, cook up on our own. And us living into our identity as priests means leaning into this collective identity of glorifying God together. Okay, does that sound outrageous to you? If it doesn't, you probably have not been going to church long enough. <laughs> All you have to do is join a small group here. And at some point, you'll wonder, is this really what it looks like when God goes public? What's happening in this group, this group of people? And if we're honest, that I, aren't, are you ever suspicious of that, like in the, in the church when we gather together like this? Is, this? is this really the place that God is dwelling? And guys, if we're honest, part of the reason we're suspicious of that is because we go here, Right? So we know that, that maybe this isn't all it's cracked up to be because we know the sin that we carry inside of ourselves. God really replaced the temple with us? But this passage also gives us an important metaphor for us to understand, to help us understand what it means for us to be the temple and what to expect as the temple. And that's Christ as the cornerstone. So we see that in verse 6 of this passage. It says, for in scripture it says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But here, Peter is talking about Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone. 
And over the next few verses, he kind of lays out a little bit. He gives us the gospel in like a, in a very abbreviated form as he talks about what it means for Jesus to be the cornerstone. Okay, but I think that metaphor can kind of be lost on us because we don't talk about cornerstones very often. So a, a cornerstone, it was the most important stone in any building project. And it was carefully crafted and, and very precisely hewn so that its angles and the lines of sight that would be built off of that stone would be straight and true. Because the entire building that was going to be built would derive its shape from this stone. There were no laser levels, you know? So the way that people built the walls is they would line up the walls with this stone, and if the stone was off, if it wasn't totally straight, if it wasn't totally true, then the building would be lopsided and structurally unsound. It was the start of the foundation of the building. And because of how significant this stone was for the structural integrity of what was being built, it was also a very, it was, it was a very precious stone. And builders would take a lot of care and, and go through a lot of effort to find something really beautiful to serve as the cornerstone. And the moment it was laid for a building, that was an incredibly significant moment. And what Peter tells us in this passage is that our cornerstone is Jesus Christ. That he is the most important stone in the entire building that we are being built into. He's our foundation. He's the guarantee of the, in, the integrity of this house, of the straight lines of the building. He's the one who, these verses say, is building us up into a spiritual house. And we understand what it means for us to be living stones as we look to him and understand what it meant for him to be a living stone. And when Peter, when Peter is writing this about the temple, I, I, I have to think that he has in mind the way that Jesus spoke about the temple when he was on earth. Right? Because Peter walked with Jesus in his ministry. He was around him as he spoke and did his miraculous works as he taught. And one of the things that Jesus says at the very beginning of his ministry, this is in John 2, 19, he says he's standing in front of the temple in Jerusalem, and he says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Classic Jesus, right? Very cryptic. Everyone was like, what are you, what are you saying? Like, what are you talking about? And it became more and more clear over the course of Jesus' ministry, but it became very clear after the resurrection. And so the apostles spend their ministry kind of teasing out this, this phrase and this theme. And what Jesus, what Jesus was saying, what, what they came to realize, and what we believe Jesus was saying is that in his, in his work, in his life, and his death, and his resurrection, he was fulfilling what the temple was designed to foreshadow. That Jesus came and he put on flesh, and he was a more accurate picture of God dwelling among us than can ever be in the temple. That John 1 tells us that when he came to earth, the glory of God was made manifest among us. The presence of God came to dwell with his people. Face to face. But he was rejected. 
and the cornerstone, the work and the ministry of Jesus that was supposed to give life to the people actually became a stumbling block and a stone of offense is what this passage says. That Jesus was rejected. And that rejection resulted in his, in his death, in his crucifixion. But in that rejection, in the death and in the crucifixion of Jesus, we find our victory. Because in that, Jesus, again, he, he achieved what the temple foreshadowed. The temple was about God coming to dwell with his people. Well, through his death and his resurrection, what Jesus achieved is the redemption and restoration of our relationship with God. And in three days, he rose again. And what that proved now is that the temple was unnecessary. It had been necessary up until that point, but the, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, it wasn't needed anymore. And now the people of God would have access to God wherever they went because God would be among them and dwell in them. So what that means for us as the temple is that as we are being built into the temple of God, that what we expect is not perfection out of each other. That what we expect is that as we, as we live together, as we do this work of being the temple of God together, that what we should find is that we are indeed a people who need mercy and have received mercy, and so we give mercy out to each other. That what we should be more aware of is that we are a people who have been called out of darkness into light and who God is continually calling out of darkness and into light. That we are a people not who have been finished, but a people who are being built and what that continues to throw us back on is the, the promise and the hope of our cornerstone, Jesus, who we anchor our relationship with God in. Not in our perfections, not in what we achieve, but in what he has done for us. So then what does it look like for us to be the temple? So we are a temple together, right, as a collective identity. Christ is the cornerstone of that temple. Okay, so what do we do with that? How do we live out of that? Well, Peter's concerned about that. He tells us in this passage. We see it in verse 4. It's at the very beginning of what we read. It says, as you come to him. As you come to him. As you come to him together. It says that as we come to him, we're being transformed. We're being built into this spiritual house. And this phrase, it, it, again, it takes us back into this Old Testament imagery because this phrase, coming to him, what it would call to mind for the people is the command to come and worship God. That when the people came to this place where God was glorified, right, where his story was made known, where his glory dwelt with his people, the only appropriate response was worship. And the same is true for us as we come together and as God becomes known, as we see his character and we manifest it to each other, the only appropriate response for us is worship. That's why we build our church services around acknowledging who God is and then crying out to him in song and in prayer and in worship. And it's something that we do together. I had a friend ask me a few weeks ago, why are you so interested in getting people together right now? Wouldn't it just be easier if we, if we didn't go through all the effort to do that? And I've thought about that a lot as, as we kind of live through all of this isolation. 
And we're, we're working to get people together as Christians in, in ways that are safe and, and respect the season that we're in. We're doing that because it's who we are designed to be. It's how we have been called to represent God to our world. So that's why we're getting people together here, even though we're masked up and it's different than we would normally expect. It's why we're encouraging home churches, right? It's why people are gathering all over our city in, in people's homes, on their back decks, on their driveways to watch these services because we are called to worship God together. This together element of worshiping God is a really key component of our identity as priests. And so we would say, man, if you, if you in good conscience can worship God with other believers right now, do it. And if you can't, then look forward to and anticipate and pray toward the day when you can step back into that. And it's why we come together in discipleship groups, whether that's around the word through Zoom, whether that's in person. I know a lot of groups are switching off week to week. And we do that because as we, as we come to God around his word, we're worshiping him. We're living out this purpose of being the temple together. But it's more than what we do on Sunday mornings. It's more than the services that we take in. It's more than discipleships that we, discipleship groups that we go to. Right? Jesus tells us in Matthew 18, 20, and you've, if you've been around the church for a while, you've heard people pray this whenever there's like a church potluck, right? Where, do you guys know what it is? What, do you know what verse I'm talking about? Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, Yes, there I am among them, right? That's the promise is that well, that can kind of become passe to us because we've heard it so many times, but the promise is that when God's people gather together, even if it's just two people, God's presence is there among them in a really special way. It's the promise that we've been talking about this whole time, that we are the temple of God and that God's glory dwells in us, that his presence is with us. And that means whenever you are with another believer, you have, you're, you're worshiping God. You have the opportunity to worship God. But the way that you listen to each other and care for each other and encourage each other, and that is worshiping God. That as you do the hard work of conflict, that's a part of being in community, of confronting, of forgiving, of asking for forgiveness, then that is work that, that worships God. And as you are with other believers and you enjoy them, as you eat together and laugh together and drink together, that's worship of God. That as, as we do that work of, of, of living in community together, we're manifesting the presence of God to each other. We're being priests to each other. But we're called to more than just manifesting the presence of God to each other. We see that in verse 9 in this passage. It says that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So we declare not only to each other, but we also declare to the world out there. I coach one of our discipleship groups. And this group, I think, has has something like 14 people in it already, and, and the leaders asked me, hey, can we invite people to group still? Yes. <laughs> you can always invite. 
Our groups are never closed. Sometimes they're off the website and you can't find them that way. But the purpose of that is that our, our groups are always designed to be a place that you can invite people, that you can say, come, come and be a part of this thing with me and come and see what it looks like when people are worshiping God together. Come. And yeah, that's true for discipleship groups. It's true for what we do here on Sunday mornings. Yeah, come to those things. But, but our call again, guys, is so much bigger than that. It's us being willing to say to the world around us, to the people that God has put in our lives, hey, come and come and be a part of my life as I, as I live my life with the people uh, that I'm in community with. So not just come to small group, but come and be with me and my friends as we eat and drink and laugh together. Come and be part of this with us as we do conflict, as we forgive and ask for forgiveness. Come be a part of this with us as we listen and cry with and encourage each other. Not just come to church, but come and sit around my kitchen table with me and my friends or right now on my driveway, right? And I... I think that's true now more than ever. Maybe I should say I'm aware of it now more than ever because I'm aware of my own desperate need to be a part of something bigger than myself. That in the last six months, I have become more aware of how important it is for me to be a part of this community. That me taking in this worship service by myself is really different than hearing my friends sing and worship God with me. And that me opening up the Bible myself is really different than when I get to gather with my friends in a discipleship group and hear them talk about the word with me. And that I've become more aware, I think we all have become more aware of how on a daily basis we're in need of, of interaction with other humans. And to all of those needs and desires, God says, yes, I created you for that. You are the temple. We are the temple. And that we, we've been invited into this adventure of inviting other people to come with us and worship God, whether that's, on, whether that's to a home church, whether that's to a discipleship group, but even more than those things, saying, come and, come and be a part of my life with me. as we worship and, and point our attention to Christ, our cornerstone. Pray with me. And Father, uh, we, th we thank you and praise you uh, that you created us for relationship. Father, we, we praise you that you've created us to be, uh, most of all, Father, in relationship with you. But through that and through the belonging that we find in you, that you call us to then minister that presence out into our world. And Jesus, I pray for my, for my friends here that you would be ministering your presence uh, and our belonging to you, uh, to us over the course of this week and in our day-to-day -day lives. Would you be teaching us what it means then to rest in that presence and to take that presence out with us? I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.